One important trend for the future of agriculture is the increasing interest by institutional investors who want to buy farmland. When I first started doing this, there was four or five institutional investors in farmland. Today, 15 years later, there are hundreds that are interested in deploying capital into the farmland asset class. Not everyone has seen this outside capital as a net positive for farmers, but Skyroot of Root Agricultural Advisory works with these investors and says they bring liquidity to the market, serve as a great partner for local farmers and vendors, and even sometimes will share in the cost of new technologies. Where it's like, hey, we'll 50-50 cost share with you on a, you know, new technologies that allow the farmer to be more efficient, but also adds an ESG storyline and, you know, like, actual benefit to the farm. I, I think in 10 or 15 or 20 years, there will be a premium to property that, that has all the data and the proof. We use less water. We put way less inputs into the watershed. We have maximized our yields. We're using emissions efficient equipment. Skyroot talks farmland, water, ag tech, and the impact of these investors on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, before we dive into today's episode on farmland investment and management, I'd like to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is the engine of Canada's agriculture industry, Calgary, Alberta. Located in the heart of Alberta's best-growing land, Calgary has it all. With more than 22 facilities in Alberta playing a critical role in ag research and innovation, Calgary is a hub for precision agriculture and agricultural technology. The Calgary region has proximity to customers, abundant primary agricultural commodities, and a growing cluster of value-added processing capacity. That's why multinational agribusiness leaders call Calgary home. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution, and you're welcome to join. Visit calgaryagbusiness.com to learn more. That's calgaryagbusiness.com. And actually, stay tuned for next week, where we're going to feature a really interesting company uh, doing something pretty exciting in Calgary. Well, thank you very much to Calgary Economic Development for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, so now to today's featured conversation with Skyroot of Root Agricultural Advisory based right here in Boise, Idaho. Sky and I joke because we both live here in the same area, but the first couple of times we met in person, we we're actually out of state at conferences and both happen to be at the same place. Both Sky and I seem to be on the go quite a bit, so that was fitting. Uh, we did finally end up having lunch here in Idaho a couple of months ago, and I enjoyed talking to him so much and hearing his perspective that I asked if he'd also be on the podcast. Sky is the founder of Root Agricultural Advisory, where he manages and grows farmland portfolios throughout the western United States. Prior to starting his company, he worked as senior vice president for Westchester Group Investment Management, a global farmland asset manager. And before that, he was a water rights consultant for Westwater Research, a leading advisory firm in the water rights industry. In today's episode, we talk about farmland and water and the perception by the ag industry of more outside institutional money being deployed in rural areas. And when we talk about institutional money, we're talking about large organizations such as banks and pension funds or insurance companies who are typically investing on behalf of their stakeholders. 
Uh, Sky is unique in that he grew up in a very rural part of eastern Oregon on a farm and ranch, so he really understands the perspectives of both producers and investors looking to get into the industry. In fact, that's where I'll drop into the conversation here. Sky's describing his background and what ultimately led him into farmland investment consulting and management. So grew up on a uh, farming operation, ranch operation as well in Eastern Oregon. So grew up around cows, cow-calf operation and heavy alfalfa, uh, quite a bit of organic actually, turned to organic uh, in the middle of my growing up years. And my dad owned several other businesses in, in the agricultural ecosystem, I would say. You know, my dad's a serial agricultural entrepreneur himself. And so I, I grew up in that environment, working on farmland, and all, both on our own that we owned and also on other people's. And so in connection with that, uh, you know, I had that upbringing. And then through schooling, you know, realized that I liked a lot of the analytical things, economics, finance, accounting, some of that type of stuff. And even, even into the science side as well, soil science and you know, crop science and some of those types of things as I dabbled in those in, in college definitely leaned further to the uh, more economic business side of it and then fell into uh, a few jobs you know right out of college that were i guess kind of laying a foundation for me professionally to be able to be a i guess a, a uniquely qualified farmland investor of sorts so water right consultant i spent several years as a water rights consultant and then from there worked for a large institutional investor doing kind of farmland portfolio management and putting together these farm deals and farm assets so when I look back over the last 20 years, I mean, really my whole life, but particularly the last 20 years since leaving home, it's been a, an interesting path that has led me to be, I guess, qualified and, and not only that, but also passionate about what I do. Right, right. And, and you shared with me a really fascinating story about your dad, kind of like about how your dad built his, his farming business. Could you share that? Because I thought that was really cool. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. So... My parents both are are incredibly hard workers and and uh, you know very high risk takers and you know I, I'm just so privileged to be able to grow up in their home. But uh, when my dad was in his late twenties, I couldn't tell you exactly how old he was, but I'm going to say 27, 28, something like that. He was managing some farm properties and ranch properties for some others, meaning that you know he he wasn't the owner and was kind of taking care of them. And he heard about an opportunity for uh, custom haying, custom farming and haying for alfalfa and about 100 miles south of where we lived, which, you know, in the mid 80s, that was a bit of a slog. I mean, equipment was not what it was today. Things were certainly different. And it was, uh, it was an opportunity to, uh, so J.R. Simplot was, you know, obviously large, massive entrepreneur and, uh, you know, built multi-billion dollar company. He had purchased this property about 100 miles south of where I grew up and needed this custom, you know, hay contractor. And so my dad kind of threw his name in the hat. And uh, to make a long story much shorter, I ended up landing this opportunity. And so, uh, you know, here my dad is in his late 20s, doesn't really have a lot of equipment, a lot of capital. And J.R. Simplot personally took a chance on him. And they kind of figured out a way to, uh, to work it out so that my dad could grow his fleet of equipment and perform. And he did. And so for, you know, call it, say 15 years, he uh, was a custom hay contractor on this large property. I think it was, you know, maybe 100 pivots, something like that, you know, 10,000 acres irrigated. And, you know, he went from having one tractor, one swather, one baler that were all old and pretty run down. And he was kind of a startup guy to being a pretty, uh, pretty large custom hay contractor. 
but then allowed him to grow his, certainly his business as well. So I grew up, you know, I wouldn't say certainly not daily contact with J.R. Simplot, but regularly throughout the summer, I, I'd see him two or three times a summer all through my upbringing. And uh, so that was a unique experience. That's amazing. I mean, what, what do you think it was about your dad that J.R. Simplot was willing to kind of take that chance on him? Because I'm sure there were other people interested in that opportunity. Do you have an idea? Yeah. You know, I think, uh, I mean, I've heard my dad say it before that, you know, it's, it's the light he had in his eyes. Like he knew my dad was hungry and was going to go make it happen and do his best and work super hard. And, uh, and that's what he did. And he, you know, made the situation successful for, uh, not only for the Simplot company, but, uh, but also for himself. It turned into some, you know, a huge blessing for my parents at, at a time when they could buy a lot of land where, where we did live for a, a relatively inexpensive amount of money and develop it and do some great things that where they've created a lot of wealth for themselves tangentially because they had this opportunity in front of them. So you know, I, I literally grew up with my dad telling me it's uh, everybody in life gets opportunities. You got to know when to seize the opportunity. And it was just one of those times where he knew it was time to work. And he'll also tell you that those years, they were incredibly hard too, not only on family life, but also on you know himself physically and other things. I mean, he'd, he'd go to work for 100 days and not stop and, you know, working 20 hours a day. And you talk to some of the guys that have worked for my dad for 30 plus years. And those are almost like war story days of them working literally 24-7, sleeping in the back of pickups and tractors. And, you know, and in my teenage years were growing up in that environment and sleeping in a camp trailer 100 miles from home and not seeing my mom for a month at a time and, you know, some of those types of things that, uh, that form me, uh, certainly my character as well, but it was a big opportunity. That's ah, incredible. And so, you know, what from that experience growing up, were you able to combine with what you said earlier about being interested in kind of business and economics and finance, you know, what, what kind of stuck with you that you've sort of built upon in, in your career? Yeah, no, I mean, to, to boil it down to a, maybe a salient point, my favorite part of what I do is feeling like I can be pretty confident and competent both in interacting with the farmers of the particularly Western United States. But I mean, I frankly, I could say the farmers of America, I get them like I know how they think and the decision sets that they make and where their mindsets are coming from, how they generationally think. But then I also understand Wall Street and, you know, to, to way oversimplify that comment by just saying Wall Street, but the investor, like I get how the investor mind thinks. And so my favorite problem, my favorite part of what I do is being able to bridge those worlds. And when Wall Street looks at farmland, I think there's a lot of, you know, you and I could probably end up in a tangent with this comment I'm about to make, but there's probably a lot of people out there in the country and world that think that, you know, oh, Wall Street's, they're just sharks and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is that there's a lot of institutional capital, so a lot of money out there, Tim. There's a ton of money. And when you start thinking about all of the, the ways that people, for example, save for retirement, you know, if you're a doctor or a professor or a school teacher or a policeman or a firefighter, I mean, on and on and on, you know, everybody's saving for retirement. It's the American dream. Be able to hit a point, you retire. Well, I guess one American dream. And, uh, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the folks that are managing that retirement money, the mutual funds, the pension funds in the sake of, you know, pilots and police officers and, you know, firefighters, teachers, you know, those are pension plans that manage those assets. And those folks that are Wall Street types that are managing that money, they see farmland as a slice of their investment pie that is really interesting. 
And frankly, I agree with them. And I think it's a fascinating thing for them to do. So anyways, it's a long-winded way of answering your question. That's one of my favorite parts of all, like when I mesh everything together that's built me as a person, it's, it's bridging those two worlds. Because I actually do feel like I'm qualified and I enjoy doing it. Right, right. And, and that's the core part of your business, right, is, is all that kind of retirement savings and money that wants to be invested and thinks farmland is a good asset. Of course, you said you agree with them. You help them find ways to deploy it there. Is that right? That's right. Yep. So, you know, just like uh, these big pension funds might own stocks and bonds and commercial real estate, big office buildings and, you know, on and on and on. Many of them have a, a small sliver of their pie as a, both an inflation hedge and just a, a diversification investment into farmland. And, and some of them globally, some of them just in the U.S., you know, it's still a very small part of the overall footprint in agriculture. You know, when you look at land ownership and farmland, you know, institutional land ownership is still incredibly small in the overall piece of the pie. So it's not like these pension funds are taking over the farmland world, but they do. I help them deploy capital in that space and then they keep it as farmland, right? I mean, it's, you know, if, if I look at the maybe 500 properties I've been associated with over the last 15 years, maybe one or two of them have been sold to us some sort of an alternative use, you know, build into commercial or, or a residential type of a play. You know, the rest of them call it the other 498 properties. They're still in farmland and they will be in farmland for decades and decades to come because that's the thesis. The thesis is not a development play. It's a own the farmland, rent the farmland or run the farmland, you know, based on what you're specifically doing, permanent crops or row crops to people in that local economy. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's frankly, it's a good thing all around in my mind. Yeah. And when these investors are coming to you, is their question just like, hey, help us buy some farmland? Or I imagine it's probably more nuanced than that. Like there's some strategy here that you're advising them. What, you know, what type of advice are you offering them? Kind of what, what are their questions that, that you are there to help answer? Yeah, no, it's, um, it's definitely a, a, a pretty broad range. Let's use that same analogy and run it through, uh, you know, the, the farmer all the way to Wall Street. On the Wall Street side, you know, it's, it's talking to them about portfolio construction and, and diversifying across crop types and regions and, you know, just risk profiles, and, you know, literally doing risk and return analysis, financial analysis, and looking at portfolio construction all the way to on the farmer side, the bare bones of what the soil tests and soil profiles look like and you know crop yields and climate and water water rights water profiles some of those fundamental i guess valuation metrics that you would be looking at on a farm property regardless of who the buyer is you know it's it's that's how you look at a farm and so all the way from the kind of agronomy and horticulture stuff to the other end of the spectrum being kind of portfolio construction and everything in between and you mentioned kind of the institutional ownership as a percentage of total farmland is still really small. Has the interest from investors changed much as prices have gone up? I think everybody has seen, you know, their local farmland values go up pretty dramatically, especially in recent years. I know I know the overall trend is like, hey, it's a strong appreciating asset in general, but it seems like it's it's sort of above the trend line here lately. Um, have you seen the interest from investors change at all as a result? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. I would say that the quick answer to your question is no. You know, it has not gone down. But I, I would say that it's maybe become less generalist and more specialist because of that, you know, above the trend line appreciation. You see different investor types. I mean, to take a half step back, Tim, when I first started doing this, there was four or five institutional investors in farmland. You know, that's as early as 15 years ago. 
that, that were kind of doing this, uh, investing in farmland. And some of them have been around doing it for, you know, a long time, a long meaning like, you know, 50, 40, 50 years. And, you know, some were fairly new in kind of the early 2000s in this space. Today, 15 years later, there are hundreds of, you know, institutional investors that are interested in deploying capital into the farmland asset class. And so, yeah, it's, it's a bit unique. And I guess what I'm seeing in, in terms of this above the trend line last couple of years, I mean, we're in uncharted territories. I, I tell people all the time that the last 12 to 18 months, there are things happening in farmland, cap rate compression and a variety of other things that I've never seen. I've seen a few bubbles, you know, what I would call smaller bubbles. There's never really been any massive bubbles in my career in agriculture. There was in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s due to interest rates. You know, that, that was an, a big asset bubble in the farmland world because rates went up to 20% or high teens. And, and you can't have 20% interest rates and not have that affect asset value. So in that sense, maybe we're going to see another a little bit of a bubble in agriculture. Uh, you know, having, you know, basically virtually free money for the last decade has positively influenced the, you know, above trend line appreciation that has happened, generally speaking, in the farmland sector. But the reaction that I've seen is not less interest. Like, oh, we don't want to invest in farmland anymore. It's been more of a, you see these different groups that are out there that are now, you know, one might be like solely focused on blueberries because that's their thesis. Or somebody else might be totally focused on apples because they feel like that's a that's a value buy. It's an opportunity for, you know, to buy it at, at an you know, undervalue. So that's where we're seeing a bit more of that we didn't necessarily used to see 15 years ago. It's kind of like, you know, the few people involved were interested in buying just about any deal. But now you have a much, much more specialization. Right, right. And is that one of the questions you're tasked with is like, hey, what are, you know, relatively undervalued commodities out there? And if so, you know, I, I'm not asking for free advice here, but I'm just curious if, if there's anything that stands out. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. And, and, uh, and yes, we are tasked with those things. And maybe a, a comment that can be made at a high level is that there are certain specialty fruits and veggies that are in very high demand globally. And we have some really unique parts of the Western US specifically that can grow those things, whether that might be organic blackberries or blueberries or say like organic microgreens. And I'm mentioning organic twice, but uh, you know it doesn't necessarily have to be organic, but that does add a particular premium when you're sending it to you know, certain parts of Asia, Europe, and the US you know, here domestically. And so th- there is some interesting investment opportunities there where I think you can, you know, climate wise and water endowment in various places, you can grow those crops uniquely in certain parts of my sandbox of where I'm at. And you can buy the ground, you know, on a relative basis, pretty cheap compared to say, trying to buy it in Holland or trying to buy it in, you know, I'm sure you can buy it for cheap down in Chile or other places like that. But then you have a whole other subset of issues that you can be, you know, thinking about in terms of the global economy. And so that's one one area. And then another place, you know, ironically enough, maybe not crop specific, but water areas. So we see certain water areas that are, uh, you know, that have maybe a, a lower appreciation than we would expect for that area. You would think that certain water areas would actually have lower appreciation because the water is looking pretty sketchy right now. You know, say, for example, in like the Colorado River area some of the drainage on the Colorado River that maybe like say Yuma, Arizona or the Imperial Valley in California, we still see very strong appreciation in those areas. 
you know, when you look into the future, like, you know, 20, 30 years from now, there's real concerns about water, you know, in those areas. And so, you know, you see people that invest and pay are willing to buy farmland in, in a few of those select areas within that river basin drainage because the water rights are so senior compared to everybody else. And so they see a value buy, even though the, the water might be drying up down there, certain areas of that southern, you know, kind of the southwest are going to be the last to dry up. And so, uh, you know, that there's people that are interested in, in owning and kind of they see a value buy there. Uh, and there's other areas in the West as well that would be that same way that, uh, you know, you would think because on the inverse side, they have really good water. And if you look 20, 30 years into the future, it would feel you know pretty strong that they're going to continue to have good water. And so those areas you would think should be appreciating faster. And in some areas, they're not. And so there's some value buys there as well related to water. That's really interesting. And, and the seniority of the water rights generally transfers with the transfer and ownership of the property, or does that vary state by state? Oh, uh, well, water right law is so that my one of my master's degrees was in water law, water policy, and uh, water law definitely varies state by state. It sometimes drastically varies, but but as a general comment, you know, regardless of the state uh, that were you'd be involved with in the West, water rights seniorities would transfer with property. I mean, there's certainly some nuances to that comment, but if you go in and want to buy a farm, whatever the water right priority date is, if it's an 1895 priority date, the seller of that farm, uh, again, in, in 95% of the cases, that water is going to transfer with that property and you'll keep that priority date and it'll be a, you know, a benefit to your ownership. Okay. All right. Well, I, I want to get back to water if the, if we have time here. But first, you know, a lot of these investors that you're working with, I would imagine they are conscious of kind of ESG type um, exposure uh, as far as, you know, they want to make sure they're investing in something that that isn't going to look negative in any way. And so I wonder if you have to deal with that at all as far as considerations of like, hey, we're not so sure we want to be invested in. Uh, a really water intensive crop like alfalfa that just goes to livestock that, you know, we have concerns about whatever greenhouse gas emissions, you know, if that's a consideration or who they uh, actually rent the ground out to, uh, if that's a consideration when it comes to, you know, the nuances of of what these investors are dealing with. Yeah, so we see the uh, the whole spectrum here. I'd say as a as, a, as an overarching comment, today's farmland investor has to focus on ESG. It's, you know, in some cases, almost regulatory required. You can't just ignore those kinds of things. We're not farming, you know, 40 years ago when a lot of things happen that, that you can't do today. And I would say that one of the benefits to the agricultural economy, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. I would say that there are both innovative farmers, you know, that, that are very focused on, you know, various ESG things. And, you know, some of these funds, institutional funds that are out there, many of them are leading the charge, you know, tip of the spear type of stuff to really look at technology and look at, uh, you know, how can we do so many other you know, things more efficiently, whether that's from the biological standpoint of, you know, utilizing less inputs so that we don't affect our watershed as much or just from a profitability standpoint, all the way to irrigation technology. I would say in reaction to your comment about the alfalfa, uh, you know, there, there's probably a few funds out there that on principle are, you know, not wanting to invest in high water crops, but they'd be the exception. The majority of farmland investors, you know, they're fairly agnostic to uh, crop type or location, but they 
they get around it a different way. So it's like, okay, we're willing to grow alfalfa and they don't specify that, you know, it has to go one way or the other, but they're going to, um, you know, spend money on telemetry systems on pivots and, you know, high efficiency sprinkler packages and soil moisture monitors and probes that are, you know, making it to where you're not putting too much water on the, on the ground and, you know, and on and on and on. A creative and interesting thing that I see in the world I live in is that you see cost sharing amongst, you know, some of these progressive farmers and the funds where it's like, hey, we'll 50-50 cost share with you on a, you know, new technologies that allow the farmer to be more efficient, but also adds an ESG storyline and like actual benefit to the farm. So yeah, you know, I, I think in time we're going to see some valuation consideration. I, I would say today, today there's not a you know, if you were to say you know, is there a ten percent or fifteen percent valuation premium or rent premium to a farm that has all the latest bells and whistles in the ag tech space? You know, is there is there that premium? I would say no, there isn't. But will there be uh, as we look at the future of agriculture? Yes, I do. I think in 10 or 15 or 20 years, there will be a premium to property that that has all the data and the proof that, hey, we are better than our neighbor. Uh, you know, we have done these, taken these steps. We use less water. We put way less, you know, inputs into the watershed. We have maximized our yields. We have new systems in place. We're using fuel efficient, you know, or emissions efficient uh, equipment. And because of that emissions efficient equipment, that's you know highly correlated to the fact that it's probably new and newer equipment is you know capturing data in a much more efficient way. It also allows you to, you know, when I was a kid, uh, kind of the war stories we mentioned earlier, we would literally spend, I'm not exaggerating, 16 to 18 hours a day in whatever piece of equipment we were in. And, and that's not me just, you know, moaning my childhood. That's like literally what we did. And today you can get twice the work done in half the time. I mean, I send my kids over to the farm. You know, if, if it took us 14, 16, 17 hours to rake five pivots, they'll get it done in five hours now. And it's like, wow, this doesn't even work, guys. <laughs> I joke with my kids all the time. So, yeah, I, I don't want to get too monologue. But, uh, but but the bottom line is, yes, there's a lot of, uh, you know, moving parts in that ESG world. And, and labor is certainly one of them. It's, uh, you know, as you would imagine in ag, the environmental side of it is certainly a heavy focus because of what agriculture is. But that social side is definitely a major consideration, particularly when you get into the permanent crop side, when it takes a lot of bodies to pick apples and cherries and blueberries and, you know, technology towards mechanization of some of that kind of stuff. And how do we treat the labor force and how do we bring labor in and how do we legally bring labor in and deal with the H2A program? Some of those types of things are all um, becoming forefront conversation-wise, whereas 10, 15 years ago, we literally didn't talk about any of this stuff. And and would that be kind of an example of the cost share you mentioned, where it's like, hey, we're concerned about labor and the impact of labor, so why don't we go in on a you know mechanical harvester where we would have had to handpick before, or some sort of new technology like that? Would that be kind of a, a hypothetical example of how that would work? Exactly. Yeah, that's would be one example. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, there there are some people out there that have the perception that institutional money is bad for agriculture because they see it as taking the land out of local ownership and 
thinking that has some, you know, pretty negative ramifications for local communities. So can you talk a little bit about aligning interests there as far as making sure that uh, the investor can get their return, but it's also a net positive for kind of local communities? You know, I've obviously spent a lot of time on this and had plenty of pushback on on, on this type of like, oh, you're working for, uh, you know, for the enemy, if you will. I'll tell you, it's been interesting that um, there's good and bad apples in every lot, right? In every bin that I pick, there's good and bad apples. And so I think there are a few institutional investors out there that have not been the steward that they should have been. And, and that, that's created a bad reputation in some areas. But I would say as a general comment, the institutional investment, those that know them and deal with them, the local community, whether it's the farmers, whether it's the various you know suppliers, they are pretty darn grateful for these people. You know, it's a lot of capital, right? And and it's it's modernizing and, you know, it's it's helping the overall system, you know, in these local communities. And so I'd say that um, give them a chance because in most cases, in my experience, if you come into it with a lot of concern in terms of dealing with them, you're going to come out the other side probably surprised. I have had Dozens and dozens of farmers that have told me like, you know, I went into this deal. I signed that purchase agreement, Sky, so scared that, you know, this was going to be a nightmare and that this wasn't going to turn out correctly and that, that my neighbors were going to hate me and, and you know, on and on and on. And, and the, the resonating comment is, I mean, if I sold the farm on Friday, I woke up on Monday, nothing's different. And, and by the way, the other comment that I would make is that institutional investors can't control the fact that kids aren't coming back to the farm. And so in, in, in many ways, they're providing a really good solution to the farmers of America that are in their mid-60s and their kids aren't coming back to the farm. And they're saying, hey, this is your family legacy for generations and generations. You're going to sell it uh, and maybe your nephew is going to lease it. And that makes you you know, comfortable with the fact that you're at least not totally walking away from it. You know, and in some really unique situations, it also for this institutional uh, participation in this asset class provides a unique distressed opportunity as well, where farmers are like, hey, you know, we're about to file bankruptcy because of whatever reason. Uh, and these institutional investors come in, they'll own the asset for five or seven years and they'll sell it back to the family. They'll get a good return on investment and they'll sell it back to the family. You have other institutional investors that are not interested in that whatsoever. They, they will buy it and they will own it forever. You know, and, and it's going to be a farm, uh, you know, forever. So anyways, I, I don't know if that really directly answered your question, but in, in my perspective of seeing, you know, how this has worked for 15 years and, and even evolved, there are very few negatives. How, how do you answer the questions that I'm sure you get about like Bill Gates, he's buying up all the farmland or, you know, insert name here, you know, just kind of like the conspiracy theories about people buying up all the farmland. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. You know, I, I got to be careful what I say. I don't. I definitely do not personally know Bill Gates, but I know his entire acquisition team, and these guys are consummate professionals. Like they are so good at what they do. You know, some of the best of the best that are in this asset class. And uh, I think it's sad that that you know folks like Bill Gates get so much. I mean, another one's the LDS Church. You know, they get a lot of heat. You know, politically, and that's what it is. It's all political games. That's my perspective, right? I mean, my perspective is this is. It's all political games. And, uh, you know, guys like Bill Gates are not buying up all of the farmland in the United States. When I read those articles, I laugh, uh, you know, and I, and I realize I have my bias, right? I, mean, I have my bias because I'm in this space. But, you know, there has been enough situations that I've been involved with directly where I know the whole suite of facts. Like, I know what happens. 
and what happened in, in a given situation. And, uh, you know, obviously that I couldn't divulge a specific one here on this podcast, but th- there's been enough that where news articles are written about it and I'm going 80% of articles wrong. Like it's literally factually wrong. And you're going, wow, this is too bad that uh, the things get represented this way. So, you know, when I, what I tell people, when they say to me, like, oh, Bill Gates is buying up on the farmlands, I say, really? In some ways, I fight fire with fire, which probably isn't the right way to do it. But uh, you know, I'll say things like, so what farmland has he bought up that you know of? Oh, well, I just read this article that he bought a farm in North Dakota. Really? So you live in California or Washington or, or tell me where he's bought a farm in your area. Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I don't really know. And it's, uh, it's, it's that adage of like, stop reading the, the noise. And, you know, the reality is that, you know, he may own a fraction of a percent of the farmland in the United States. But, you know, rural America still owns 99.5% of it. Bill Gates doesn't. And so that's where I just, you know, I lose patience with things like that. Uh, I can understand. No, it's, it, it's, it's been running rampant lately. I mean, it, it's everywhere I turn. I see something along those lines. Well, you know, for you and I out West here in the Western United States, I do want to get back to water before I let you go. And I know we've only got a few minutes here, but, you know, water is probably going to have the biggest impact on where, you know, agriculture goes in the future. What do you see as, as you look forward when it comes to water? Because I know you're really well educated on the topic that um, either gives you hope or concern in, in the coming decade. So maybe definitionally four things, right? So we have groundwater that we're pulling out of the ground. In most cases, not ancient water, but it's certainly in the ground and we're pulling it out. Surface water, you know, through our rivers and streams systems uh, that we're getting, we have precipitation that's coming from Mother Nature, you know, via rainfall or snowpack. That certainly feeds into those first two, groundwater and surface water, depending on the precip that we get. And then we have ocean water, you know, the salt water of the world, which is makes up most of the world. You probably didn't need me to give you that lesson, but but that's important when we think about the future of water, because I think I am a, an optimist when it comes to water. Because I believe in the creativity of the human mind. And I've seen it enough in my own life, in agriculture specifically, and clearly in many other aspects of our lives, whether it's desalination technology, you know, it might be incredibly expensive. And that may mean that instead of food as a percent of our budget being 8% in the United States or whatever it might be for whoever it is, depending on what you make, it might be 20% someday that we have to pay for our food because of the cost of desalination or the cost of, you know, doing various other creative water solutions that, that get us to where we are. Clearly in the West, because of, you know, climate cyclicality and other things, there are areas that are running out of groundwater. There are areas that are, have much less surface water and there are areas that have less precipitation, but for, there are also areas that have more groundwater, more precip and more surface water. And so, you know, as climates change, Maybe we grow less in certain areas and we grow more in others. And, you know, we start growing lettuce in Washington instead of in California because we have the Columbia River, you know, which is a different water endowment and on and on and on. But I I think that um, I I tend to be pretty optimistic about the future because I think we'll figure it out. And my my kind of, I I guess, backstop of we'll figure it out is worst case scenario, we're going to, you know, we're going to have desalination plants all up and down the western and eastern seaboards. And we're going to be pumping water to various parts of the United States, various drought-ridden parts of the United States. It's ocean water. I envision a day, maybe it's not in my lifetime, but maybe it's in my kids' or grandkids' lifetime, where that is what happens. Because that's how we're going to have to do it. 
All right. Well, we will end things right there on that note of optimism for the future, thanks to innovation, which kind of speaks to the heart of this whole podcast. Thanks so much to Sky Root for being on the show. Uh, learn more about what he's doing over at rootagadvisory.com. And thank you to each and every one of you who continue to share this show with your friends and with people you know and everybody on social media. It really is the best thing you can do to support uh, what we're doing here is to help spread the word to others who might be interested in these fascinating things that are happening in the world of ag and ag tech. Well, thank you so much for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.